I'm Stephen Downs. And I'm Adam Risby. And this is Letters to the Sky, a podcast about the metaphysical iconoclasts, philosophical visionaries, and religious leaders of the world. Whether you consider yourself religious, spiritual, neither, or something in between, we invite you to take a deep dive with us down metaphysical rabbit holes and learn to see your life from a new perspective. Adam? Steven. Don't laugh. I won't. I'm holding it back. Are you, are you doing it right now? Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. Good to have you back. Yeah, and, thank uh, you for back. inviting me back to my show. <laughs> That's You are such a generous host. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. It's the least I could do. <laughs> so we usually record in the mornings, and Adam just finished a 12-hour shift, and I finished a lovely, lazy Saturday looking at houses. So I am, I am pooped. <laughs> and but Adam's ready. We're for both ready stuff. for an amazing, ama- truly amazing episode. Yeah. So this episode, we are talking about Chogim Trungpa's Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which is without question my favorite book of all time. And I think it is for anyone who has been on the path, or I, to be honest, it was, I think, the first or second spiritual book I ever read in my entire life. Someone gave it to me, like an old tattered copy, like a first edition or whatever. And I just devoured it and loved it so much. And it's been on the top of my list ever since. To show you, Stephen, here, we can see each other on on video. But for those of you listening, I'm going to describe what I'm doing. I'm showing Stephen. This is the book you gave me. And I still have the postcard you put on the inside. What does it say? I forget what it says. And you wrote, this is the single most important book you will ever read. Hey. Hey. <laughs> and I don't the, even remember when I did that. <laughs> it's, so I still have the book, and, and I still have that Post-it note that you uh, put on the inside cover. And that, that goes to show how much Stephen values this book, and it, it truly it's, it's a marvelous, wonderful book. But we're going to dive into that now. Adam, would you say that this book is the netter's anatomy of spiritual books? Oh, man. That's not really, that's like, no, is, the is reference. it essential or is it just like traditional, you know? like <laughs> Right, yeah, I don't know if the re- reference works, but it's, it's, it's a great book. It's a great book. I just wanted to show Good that try. I knew something about medicine <laughs> from that time I tried to go to medical school. Yeah, All right. you almost made it. So close. Is that, that GPA? All right. Okay. <laughs> Talking about the book. So, Chogam Trungpa was a Tibetan teacher. He came from Tibetan lineage. He was the head of a particular lineage in the Kagyu school, although he also held the lineage for part of the Nyingma school as well. And he started out in England when he came to the West. He was a monk, and he came to the West, and he basically decided that there is no way that these Western people are going to relate to me as a Tibetan monk. And so he he kind of like gave back his robes, he kind of renounced his his roles as a monk, and he basically adopted a Western lifestyle. And he was a bit, he was, well, I was going to say a bit of a controversial figure. He was a controversial figure, but I can't get away from how good this book is. This book has, like, touched my life in so many important ways, and every time I read it, it is fresh again and has new meaning for me, and I, I just can't get over it. Yeah. I would say that even if you're not a Buddhist, even if you're not even interested in the teachings of the Buddha, there are some fundamental guideposts in this book that every ardent spiritual practitioner will recognize. There are dynamics in ways of being when we try to deal with evolving and and diving into our own psyche and transforming ourselves that show up over and over again. It's almost like staples along the path. It's a very well-worn path, and and I think Trungpa, he describes it so well. Yeah, he does. He has such a way with, for someone who wasn't born in an English-speaking language, he has a much better command of the English language than most English authors, English-speaking, like native English-speaking authors. And the way he describes things and the metaphors he chooses are so perfect and poignant and just 
exact. I mean, I don't know how he did it. Anyway, we can just jump in because my favorite part about podcasts is when the hosts spend like a good five, six minutes not talking about the content <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> so I don't want to let everybody down. Let's talk a little bit about the context of the book. So the book, actually, Chogim Trungpa talks about this right at the outset in, in his introduction. And he says that this book is actually from a f- series of talks given at Boulder, in Boulder, Colorado, in the fall of 1970 and the spring of 1971. And I'll just read a little bit here because this is the book. It's what it's about. He said, at that time, we were just forming Karma Zong, our meditation center in Boulder. Although most of my students were sincere in their aspiration to walk on the spiritual path, they brought to it a great deal of confusion, misunderstanding, and expectation. Therefore, I found it necessary to present to my students an overview of the path and some warnings as to the dangers along that path. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, but... Oh boy, that's a it's quite an undertaking. And I think he does a really good job in actually not that it's not that big of a book. I, I think it's something like a little over 200 pages, but he really does a good job at at the overview of the path and the dangers and all of that held I think nicely in the typical Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here's my favorite Trungpa quote of all time. The bad news is that you're falling through the air. Nothing to hang on to, no parachute. The good news is, there's no ground. I haven't heard that before. It's so good. It's so good. It perfectly describes the path. It perfectly describes it. I wanted to start with that one because I feel that is such a... So perfect. So he, in the intro, he he talks about how this, like you're saying, this is something that can be applied to whether you're uh, a non-theistic tradition, like like Buddhism is, or a theistic tradition, or, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say an atheistic tradition, because there are those, and they're a thing, and they are vulnerable to the same mental flaws that, I'm trying to, I'm just looking yeah, at the words here. Yeah, all you got to do is be a human being, and, and you will find yourself, it doesn't matter what ism you identify yourself with. Yeah, so... I think that the questions that we came up with that we really wanted to talk about today for everybody are, the first one is, what is spiritual materialism? When we use that word, what does it mean? And what what does it not mean? And this is tied to the questions like, what is the ego? And then the second one is, what is Chogam Trungpa's overview of the spiritual path as he lays it out? What does it mean to walk the spiritual path? being aware of spiritual materialism and having, as you know, he kind of says it, like spiritual materialism is a real threat to the spiritual practitioner. And then, and then thirdly is what are his warnings as to the dangers along that path, which I guess I just said again. So, you know, good for me. So I think, I think we'll, we'll just jump in here. Maybe we start with the, with his definition of spiritual materialism. And I think that's on page one. I'll, I'll read it here for us. Walking the spiritual path properly is a very subtle process. It is not something to jump into naively. There are numerous sidetracks which lead to a distorted, ego-centered version of spirituality. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we are developing spiritually when instead we are strengthening our egocentricity through spiritual techniques. This fundamental distortion may be referred to as spiritual materialism. It's so good. And in fact, this one piece I'm going to repeat again, we are strengthening our egocentricity through spiritual techniques. It's the amazing, subtle, I guess, conniving, but it's not really a thing. But the ego has this amazing tendency and ability to use absolutely anything to further its purpose of its survival. And so it, I think spiritual materialism is talking in this definition about this very subtle process that happens along the spiritual path where we start to use quote-unquote spiritual items along the path, the techniques, the rituals, the processes as fodder for the ego. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I think about spiritual materialism, and obviously he defines it great by himself, but if I were to really summarize it for myself in like a sentence, is like spiritual materialism is identifying spirituality or some part of your spiritual self, whatever, as your identity, right? Like that, that's like fundamentally what it is. And I think that that is 
For a lot of people who have not encountered this kind of conversation before, that is an incredibly threatening statement, and it's an incredibly confusing one, because for a lot of people have never even considered what their identity is or isn't. I think right now a lot of us are starting to, just in like normal conversations. But spiritually, I think a lot of people just take the path for granted, that the path is this magical thing that's going to fill us with sparkles and feeling great all the time. And I think Chokum Trungpa really dives into how that is absolutely the opposite. <laughs> he says in, in the intro, he says, the heart of the confusion is that man has a sense of self which seems to be continuous or solid, right? And that's, a, that's very Buddhist. But he, he goes on, in, in, again, in the intro to talk about how, in particular, the Buddhist path and the Buddhist kind of philosophy of how one walks the spiritual path is a process of cutting away to find enlightenment. It's it's not adding to create some sort of end product called spiritual awakening, um, because that product could then be dissolved since it was created. You know, anything that was created can be destroyed. And enlightenment is beyond being destroyed. And so it can't be created. And so the only way to do that is to cut things away to what's already there. I remember when I was younger... There was a moment where I, f I got this on a deep level, and it's the idea that there are two major paths to growth. At least at first, it seems that way. It seems like there is the what I call the positive path, or you could call it the acquisitional path, which is let me learn as much as I can. Let me gather more experiences, more books, more movies, more, 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 more. It's like there, there's something to get that I don't have. And if I know enough, if I experience enough, then I will be enlightened or at the very least more spiritual. Then at some point it dawns on you, well, what if it's actually about letting go of all the conditioning that I've had, all these false belief systems, all these ways of thinking that don't serve, don't help. In fact, they perpetuate this sense of identity that I currently hold on to. At the beginning, it seems like those are the two options I have. But deeper down the path, you start to realize that negative path of melting away and letting go till you're left with the fundamental unconditioned reality of, of yourself, that's actually the only path there ever was to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we start to get into the conversations about dualism versus like non-dualism. And this is it's obviously a tricky thing to kind of, <laughs> you can, we can talk about what dualism is all day, but like getting to what non-dualism is, is uh, I don't know if there's that much to say about it. I'm at least, I'm not good at talking about it. Well, I was going to say, we're kind of talking a little bit about Trungpa's overview of the path. So we had this question of what is spiritual materialism, and I think we identified that. He seems to lay out a pretty rough idea of, of what the path looks like. He talks a little bit about meditation, which I thought was really interesting. One of the things he says is, once you begin to understand what's going on, you start to realize the true purpose of meditation. And he actually compares it to different forms of meditation, like concentration. A lot of people think of, okay, you focus on a candle or you focus on your breath. He actually distinguishes his definition of meditation from that practice. And he says meditation, for him at least, is letting be. And there's a deep profundity in that statement because it means there's no more holding on to, there's no more grasping, there's no more pushing away, there's no more trying to identify with the situation that's happening. You're just letting what is be, both internally and externally. I thought that was a very critical aspect of, of the path for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember when I first started learning about Buddhist meditation specifically, um, I was reading another book by Chukum Trungpa, and he was talking about you know, the trappings of thinking that you're doing meditation right, right? Oh, I definitely concentrated that whole time. Oh, I nailed that meditation. Actually, <laughs> it's a not safe for work video, but Arj Barker is a, a comedian. He has a video called the, what is it, like the illest Buddhist? And he has a, he has like a rap video about how he's the best meditator around. Don't watch it around your kids or at work, but it's pretty funny. And I think I think he kind of he kind of nails it. And so Chukum Trungpa in, in his book, he's talking about like even if you were able to follow your breath and concentrate for like five percent of the time you're meditating, like the fact that you sat down and did it and just like were just with yourself, like that is 
the juice of the meditation, especially in like like shamatha meditations, uh, kind of like following the breath, concentration-based meditations. Yeah. What would you say, Stephen, are some other aspects of of his definition of the path? He talks about it throughout the book in a lot of different ways. You know, the first half of the book is really his flavor of qualities of the spiritual path. And the second one is, the second half is his take on foundational Buddhist ideas. And so I think for Chogam Trungpa, the path is not an easy one. The spiritual path isn't, this is one of the reasons I love this book. And something that really struck me the first time I read it was his the way he talks about disappointment, the idea of disappointment, he says, we must surrender our hopes and expectations as well as our fears and march directly into disappointment, work with disappointment, go into it and make it our way of life, which is a very hard thing to do. Disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. It cannot be compared to anything else. And then further on in that page, he says, disappointment is the best chariot to use on the path of the Dharma. I'm curious if that struck out to you and what you think about that, because I could I could talk about this for probably days. So I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. I remember when you first brought this up, and I think it was before I actually had read the book, and my relationship with the word disappointment up until then had been really a negative one. There's nothing good about it. You know, you're disappointed. All right, well, get past it. You know, what are you disappointed about? Or it just felt inherently like something I needed to fix. And at that point, it's pretty actually recent. It, maybe it was a couple of years ago that we were having this conversation. But eventually what happens, and this is what happened to me, is something happens in your life, a situation that causes a tremendous amount of disappointment. And it's so big that you you can't push against it. You can't push it away. You can't fix it, at least not immediately. And so you're, you're left with this behemoth stone or block just sitting in front of you on your path. And I think the suffering at that point is, is actually trying to do something with it. You're just trying to push this gigantic stone. It's, it's not going anywhere. But when you just let it be, when you realize this is it, this is the path, you know, this is what's going to bring about my transformation. And it sounds, I guess, cliche in the spiritual sense of you just let it be and you accept the moment. It's more than that. Like it feels truly, it feels visceral and it it feels poignant when something deeply disappointing happens in the sense that expectations are not met, but more than that, it's like life goes in a direction that you didn't anticipate it going. To really sit with that and to acknowledge that this too is the path. It's not that you've gone off on a side, you know, trek or gone down an alleyway that has a dead end and and you're you're actually where you're not supposed to be. No, you're actually exactly where you're supposed to be. And that too is the path. That was the big takeaway for me in, in how I relate to disappointment now. Yeah, yeah. I um, I completely agree. For me, disappointment is that starting place. Like, disappointment is the one emotion that you cannot, like, work your way around. Like, it is so thorough. <laughs> when you're, like, really disappointed, it's so thorough. And, and there's, I don't know. I have a, a feeling he, he uses it in a way that's that's more profound than than we use the term colloquially. Yeah, when I when he's talking about disappointment, I get the sense he's talking about our humanity. You know, there's so many times on the spiritual path when we even if we're in a path like like Buddhism, which is very explicitly dealing with our humanity, you know, like any kind of spiritual school you go to where it has like a, a lineage and and a set of teachings like deals with humanity. It deals with our human nature, the parts of ourselves that are ugly, the parts of ourselves that are limited, that are flawed, you know. And this is the kind of disappointment that I, I think Chokum Chunk was talking about is like we are fundamentally disappointed with ourselves. We are disappointed that we're not taller, that we're not nicer, that we're not more confident, that we're not less confident, that we're more, we're not humble enough, that we, you know, we're disappointed in a million things about ourselves. 
we're disappointed that we're not disciplined enough. We're disappointed that we're too strict with ourselves. Like, everyone's disappointed about something about themselves. There are numerous things, and we always fight it. We always fight that we're disappointed with ourselves. And I really think he's trying to get us to the point of, like, just accepting who we are right now. And that doesn't mean, like, accepting who we are as, oh, who I am is this vision of perfect or perfection, right? Especially on the dual, when we're talking about like the dualistic part, like where we're starting is we're, we're accepting that we are human and, and all the things that that means, right? And he, he goes on real quick. I just want to read another, another thing here about it kind of ties into disappointment as well as his view of the spiritual path is he says, if we regard spirituality as a way of making ourselves comfortable, then whenever we experience something unpleasant, a disappointment, we try to rationalize it. Of course, this must be an act of wisdom on the part of the guru, because I know, I'm quite certain the guru doesn't do harmful things. Guruji is a perfect being, and whatever Guruji does is right. Whatever guru, Guruji does is for me, because he's on my side, so I can afford to open. I can safely surrender. I know that I'm treading on the right path. Something is not quite right about such an attitude. It is, at best, simple-minded and naive. And again, he's talking here about, he uses the word guru, which he spends some time talking about in the book. Not everyone has that. That word doesn't mean the same thing to people who aren't in a tradition with an uh, actual guru. But this could be, people say this about the universe all the time. Oh, like the universe is on my side, right? Like there's a fundamental like fantasy about what is. And it's, it's not just dealing with our feelings that say otherwise, right? It's not about what's true. It's not even about what's true. Like, is the guru, is like, it's, there's no like truth claim in this. It's just like, what do we feel? The vast majority of us, I think, really feel deep down that like, that's not the whole truth. Right. There's actually two things I want to say. Uh, I'll have to make sure that we hit both. But one is this idea of the the other side of disappointment is he talks a little bit about surrender, and it's this idea of of letting be. It's the not pushing. It's the not grasping for. It's this typical um, concepts in, in Buddhist thought. But he says over here on page 28, the basic act of surrender does not involve the worship of an external power. Rather, it means working together with inspiration so that one becomes an open vessel into which knowledge can be poured. And I like this description of it because it applies to anyone in any situation. You become an open vessel. And this is important teaching, not only so that you can learn something and have knowledge poured into you. It's more than that. It's you hollow yourself out. There's no doing anymore. There's no forcing against the world. There's no agency that's trying to impact the world in its own way, right? But instead, it's open now. The act of surrender is is open, and what ends up flowing through you is, it's, it's ineffable, really. I mean, we can't put words to it. We could say it's the universe. We could say it's the divine. We could say it's God or the spiritual master, the guru. But it's more than that. It comes back to this original idea of the deconstruction of the sense of self. And when you do that fully, when you surrender fully, it takes you to the ground of being. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things in this Surrender is, I think, a big topic in this book, and and this book, again, is from Tibetan tradition, but the topic of surrender is something I think, like you're saying, it's universal, and it's something that I think doesn't, when I see spiritual paths being talked about in everyday parlance or people in their spiritual selves, I really don't see people using this term in its most, like, the way that I relate to it, as some, and I'm you know, I'm someone who grew up in a tradition like this. The surrender has a different meaning. You know, one of the things in that that quote I just read is he says, I can safely, I can afford to open, I can safely surrender, right? Even in this, we're surrendering, but there's like, we're saying, oh, it's safe to do so, right? Like, that's not really surrender, right? Surrender is surrender, Surrender isn't like, it's not conditional, oh, I'll surrender when I feel open and safe to surrender. It is like right now, in this very moment, like surrender to how you feel. Surrender to, you know, in this case, we could say, oh, I don't even need, we don't even need to use the word guru. But like surrender to how you feel. Like if you're feeling angry, surrender to how you feel. 
Like there's a saying that I I use, which is stop fighting that you're fighting it, right? So it's it's not even that like let's say we're angry. The problem isn't only you know you can say like oh I being angry is bad. Like that's not what causes us stress. Like being angry is just a feeling. The stress comes from we don't think we should be angry. And then it's like so if you stop fighting the fact that you're fighting being angry, and you're just like well I'm I really don't like being angry. Like all of the stress just dissolves. You just admit to yourself, I really hate being angry. And it completely removes the charge. And that's the kind of surrender I feel that, that he's getting at is just surrendering to how you feel. Yeah, I really, I just, I almost don't even want to fill this silence with with words because what you just said, Stephen, is so powerful. I think people need to hear that over and over again. It's something that I think we Stop all discover. Fighting fighting it. Stop fighting <laughs> that you're fighting. Stop it. fighting that you're fighting it. Exactly. That double, for me, I call it the double hit proposal. You know, it's this idea that you have the anger, but the real suffering is not the initial hit. It's the second hit when you're like, I don't want to feel this way or I shouldn't feel this way. That's where the suffering comes in. And it also explains a lot of the crazy and bizarre behavior on the part of so-called spiritual masters or, or enlightened masters where they do things that seem very counterintuitive and very not spiritual. It's because that's not where spirituality lies. It's not in the overt form or behavior. It's in whether there's a reaction to what arises in the moment and a grasping or a pushing away of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're, we're talking here, you know, on a very... We're really talking on a very pure level of, of like a very pure, I don't know, pure's not even the right word, like a very focused and subtle, yeah, pure's totally not the right Spiritual word. people are very that. pure, Stephen. That's true. We're talking about a very subtle understanding of like the spiritual path and of like spiritual development. And I will say, you know, in, in Buddhism, there's this concept of skillful means, which is like a teacher who's using skillful means is using all of the tools available to them. And that could be tools like being really loving to someone who's really never felt love before, like really completely opening themselves as a teacher and bearing their heart with somebody. So someone, you know, who's never really felt love before, like really felt it, feels it. It could be someone needs to be pissed off. So the teacher does something to piss them off, you know, and it's always this dance and you can never really tell. You can never really tell what's going on. And I think as, as Chogum Trung talks about it in, in the book, like right here in the, the quote I just made, like having the, only the view that everything that is happening is 100% perfect and like holding on to that like very strongly, very strictly, I think doesn't do you any good. Yeah. So the second thing I wanted to bring up from, from a couple minutes ago was this concept of, of guru it actually features quite prominently in in his book and coming from a judeo-christian and theistic background myself i i feel like it's important to dive into that a little bit and let me just quote something here i'm afraid the word guru is overused in the west it would be better to speak of one's spiritual friend because the teachings emphasize a mutual meeting of two minds it is a matter of mutual communication rather than a master-servant relationship between a highly evolved being and a miserable, confused one. I thought that was really, really good. That's such a good description, yeah. It's a really good description. And I think, hopefully, for those who are exploring that path, uh, are in a path like that, it serves as guidance for how to relate, you know, a meeting of minds, of mutual communication and openness the other thing that I wanted to highlight in this discussion of, of the guru was actually something he says early on in the book. So the, the way the chapters are arranged is he, he has a discussion of a particular topic and then he ends the chapter with a Q&A, which is actually kind of nice because you get to see what people were thinking of at the time and the questions are, they're timeless. You know, you, you, you'll have the same questions. I didn't relate to any of them. I'm sure you didn't, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, you're... I feel like you are the exception to almost everything. You're an outlier. You're a living outlier. Yeah, absolutely. They don't include... Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it, and it makes you special. Very special. Very special. Yeah, there's a pedestal just for you. I mean, being an outlier is special by definition. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's the definition, right? Okay. So sorry, the question ahead. is, so he's talking about he's talking about a guru and all that, and the the student asks him, so who are you following, more or less? Meaning, who's your guru? And he says, situations are the voice of my guru, the presence of my guru. I like that a lot because it broadens the concept. If he's he changed the word, he offered a different word. He said spiritual friend later on in the book. And if you broaden that even further still to situations, then it becomes readily apparent what life is all about. Shit happens, as people say. The question is, it's not how do I get over this to return back to life as I remembered it, but really recognizing the shit that's happening, that's it. That's it. That's what you have to go through. That's what you have to see and explore and dive into and, and traverse. That's the, that is the meat of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think, a really, it's a really profound thing that he's saying. It's a really mature understanding because I think a lot of people, when they have a teacher, and again, we're using the word guru, but I've seen this dynamic play out in any sort of tradition with a teacher. The same kind of relationship, the same kind of devotion occurs, the same kind of reliance occurs. So we're using the word guru, and I think that has a that has a charge for some people, but it, it's really just about a teacher, which is, I think, why the, the use of the word spiritual friend is, is really appropriate. But a lot of people, when they have when they first start out, and probably for a lot of people for quite a long time, they really relate to that teacher and like that guru as just the the person sitting in front of them. And I think the the longer you walk that path, and the longer the more and more you interact with that person, that that person, you start to realize that like there there's no difference between what that person may tell you or ask you to do or you know, and how they interact with you than anything else in life. There's nothing special going on. I mean, the specialness is in the connection that you have with another person that feels so tender and like, you know, you you feel like you can trust what they're saying and that they have your you have your back. But there's nothing fundamentally different, like right? Like your teacher might say, you know, there's a famous story that he talks about in in the book of the teacher Marpa and the the student Milarepa, and Marpa had it was a very extreme story. That's <laughs> gonna a lot of people are just gonna eat it up. Where he he had Marpa made his student Milarepa in order to take him on as a student, made him like build and rebuild like towers, like stone towers, and then he would build it, and then. Marpa would say, oh, I was drunk when I told you to tell, to do that. Like, tear it down and put all the rocks back exactly the way you found them so as not to disturb the landscape. And then he would say, do it again, you know? And, and like, that's not so different from, like, life just, like, handing us lemons, right? But we make it different because, oh, it's a person, and a, a person shouldn't tell me to do that, right? A person shouldn't do that. Like, I have rights, don't you know? You know, and it's like life doesn't <laughs> give a crap what rights you have. Like life, there's no constitution to life. There's no bill of rights in life. <laughs> you know, like we made that stuff up. That's really good. There's no bill of rights to life. Uh, quote by Stephen Downs. I love that. Put it on the t-shirt. Put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe we'll get some merch at some point. I, I think here's another. Here's another section. So this is from a chapter called Self Deception, and we're still talking about. I think in this instance about the teacher and about deceiving oneself with the teacher. And he says, no one can really change your personality absolutely. No one can turn you completely upside down and inside out. The existing material, that which is already there, must be used. You must accept yourself as you are instead of as you would like to be, which means giving up self-deception and wishful thinking. Your whole makeup and personality characteristics must be recognized, accepted, and then you might find some inspiration. I feel like we are quoting so much. Hopefully you all can get the sense of how valuable we consider this book because it's being quoted so heavily. I have a follow-up quote for you. Quote off. Quote off. In as much as no one is going to save us, to the extent that no one is going to magically enlighten us, the path we are discussing is called the hard way. So he talks about different ways of approaching the path. He calls, he talks about the hard way, and he uses that term, he actually puts it in quotation marks, not because it's it's 
difficult and you have to struggle. Actually, I have something to say about that in a later, little while. But it's that you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking that this is a, a walk in the park or more specifically that someone else is going to do it for you, especially if you have a spiritual master or a teacher of some sorts, whether it's a religious teacher, a pastor, an imam, they're not going to do it for you. That's for you to do. And that's what makes the spiritual path in Trungpa's view a hard way, but it's also an open way, as he would say. And it's that there's another quality to it. Maybe, Stephen, you can talk a little bit about the open way. Yeah, so he, he starts talking about the hard way and, and about, you know, I feel like the hard way, he really that's really his, like, hitting disappointment again. And then he he talks about the open way, and he says, so the next—oh, God, I'm quoting again. <laughs> this is one giant open- quote-off with a couple of <laughs> random words in between. <laughs> Openness is not a matter of giving something to someone else, but it means giving up your demand and the basic criteria of the, of the demand. So, he, you know, openness is the hard way and the open way are two sides, I feel, of the, of the coin of the spiritual path. The hard way is, is really coming to terms with disappointment, right? To being okay with disappointment. And then like once you've done it, then it's open, right? Like once you have given up, the fact that you are not perfect, the fact that you are constantly, constantly trying to be better, trying to search for something that is better, that is more pure, that is nicer, that is, you know, once you like come to terms with that, then you can be open to what is, right? Then you, then there's an openness that occurs naturally because there's no more struggle against and and that open way, that's what we're talking about here. I'm just struck right now by this particular theme of how the hard way transitions into the open way. In the famous channeled work, A Course in Miracles, there's a quote of one of the co-scribes before the teaching ever gets delivered. And it's this conversation between two psychologists, and one of the psychologists is struggling so much with his life and how messed up it is and how much strife there is that he tells this other psychologist, he says, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. And for me, that that particular phrase holds a lot of meaning in that teaching because that's the opening. That is the opening. Everything needs to come to a to a head. You need to be up to here with the craziness of life. You need to be so filled with disappointment at how life has turned out for you that everything falls apart. And then it's only at that point when everything has fallen apart that there is an opening. Yeah, and and I, on a practical level, I think I can speak to my own life for sure. This happens a lot. Like you typically hear of this kind of thing happening when people go through major changes in their life in their lives that they didn't intend. I can remember my younger brother died. So I'm 33 right now. Oh, no, I, oh, I'm 34. Whoops. I'm 34. And when I was 23, my brother, my little brother died. He was 21. He died overnight. Suddenly, there was no no warning to any of us. And I had never been through anything like that before. I had never... I had had like, you know, grandparents had died, but they were all on like on the East Coast. I was in Colorado. I saw them like once a year, but like, you know, having my brother die and like I'm the one who found him, you know, it was like hugely traumatic. <laughs> and I remember that night being on the phone with my teacher and I I was so in so much pain that I thought I was going to die. I can just remember like crying and and just there are no words for that amount of pain. I didn't I didn't know what the word pain meant until I went through that. And I remember my teacher on the phone with me and she just said, you just need to let it into your heart. You're not going to die. Because I was saying, I was on the phone with her saying, like, I'm going to die. I'm in so much pain, I'm going to die. She's like, you're not going to die. You just need to let it in. And I remember this moment very clearly where I just relaxed. I just relaxed and the pain went in and I let it in, and I just had this explosion in my heart. It literally felt like my heart exploded, and all of a sudden, it was so much love. There was so much tenderness. There was so much care. There was so much softness. There was so much feeling. 
you know, from this moment where I, you know, I can remember like talking to the cops because, you know, when a young person dies suddenly, it's treated as a homicide until they know otherwise. Like they, they investigate it like a homicide and, you know, I'm the only one home. Like I'm talking to the police officers. They're telling me this stuff. I'm talking to the paramedics, like trying to like keep it together, keep it together with my family. I had to like tell my mother that my brother had died, that her son had died, you know, like it was a horrible experience and I was I had to hold it all together. And then that night, just letting it go, right. Just like facing the fact that I was in so much pain and there's nothing I could do about it. It was too much. And, and just letting it go. And just, that was the open, the hard way and the open way, right. The hard ways like facing the pain and saying like, I'm just going to let it in. And it's, I'm snapping my fingers. I can't do it very loudly. But, you know, as soon as you do that, like, that's the open way. That There's this openness to just everything. Everything. And and Chogum Chungpa talks about the book. He talks about how you have to open to both the light and the dark. There have been times in my, in my life where I have a f- fundamental awareness and understanding that the light and the dark are the same. You know, they're they're not different things. And that when I... I contain all of those. I contain the pain. I contain the the bliss, right? I contain the hate. I contain the love. There's nobody that's different than me. There there might be people who literally have chemical imbalances who are literally different than me right now in this moment. But like, even on a, like, you know, we have to take medications for things. Mental illness is a thing, right? But all of us have the same makeup. There's not, none of us is like fundamentally different than any other person. And so when we are judging ourselves when we're judging other people are saying that person is wrong that person's awful like i would never do what that person is doing that's a load of crap <laughs> and and we we're doing ourselves a disservice because that's us we're that person just in a different situation right nobody's out there like having it all together you know, no, and nobody's completely broken. There's no such thing as being completely broken and there's no such thing as being completely whole. Wow. I think what you started to touch on, first of all, thank you, Stephen. That, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Not many people have to go through such a traumatic experience. We all go through very challenging times in our, in our lives. And that's one thing I've really held on to is be kind be kind because everyone that you meet is fighting a hard battle, but it's hard and unique for them. We don't know what's challenging for one person may not be for another, but if we assume that everyone is facing their own unique challenges, I think what arises is compassion. And that's actually one of the key things that you discovered through your trauma, which is tenderness. I remember you you said that word. It was tenderness. And that's, I think, a characteristic of the open way is, is a tenderness. It's a compassion. In fact, Trungpa calls it, he says meditation or one of the aspects of, of being in the open way is the continual act of making friends with yourself. I like that. It's very soft. It's kind. And I think it's a, it's a huge characteristic of, of the open path. It's compassion and tenderness. Yeah. You know, I the first time that it hit me that when I was judging someone else, I was judging a part of myself. The first time that that happened and I really got it, like, like I, I realized that that was the actual definition of compassion. Like, that was like the big view of compassion is that like, I'm hating myself. You know, if you, you're round and sort of spiritual circles or whatever, you you tend to hear the phrase like there won't be like peace. As long as there's war in our hearts, there will be war on the planet, right? You hear hear this like some version of that a lot. And that is what that means. You know, like when you are judging someone else, when you are saying I would never be like that, like you are saying that about yourself and it's not true. Like you're hurt. You're like cutting off a limb, you're flogging yourself. You're you're hating you, who you are. It's not that you you don't make those choices. It's not that like, oh, that means I need to go be abusive. I need to go be a mean person or, you know, hate. You can still make a choice. It's just that like there's times that people have thought that of you and you're just seeing it from a different perspective and really taking it on that it's it's you and like getting it that like really getting it that it's you. You are doing this to yourself that for me is compassion. It's so easy then to like 
be with others and to like just love them no matter who they are. And one of the things that helped me, and I'll just talk about my brother a little bit more because I, I really, I guess I don't talk about it that much anymore. But one of the things we were not on great terms, he struggled with mental illness for quite a few years before he passed away. And he was really angry at me. And I was in turn really angry at him because we're, you know, young men who are brothers. And, and I realized when, when he passed away, I couldn't even hug him, let alone tell him I loved him. And that shattered me. Like the fact that someone could just die and never know that I love them. You know, and I remember after he died, someone told me that he talked about me fondly quite often, you know, but to my face, never. Like, oh my God, it was, we did not like each other. But like the fact that someone could just, any one of us at any moment, it can be you, Adam, it can be my parents, it can be my wife, it can be my friend, that we can just die. And like the last thing that, um, you know, that I couldn't tell them I love them to their face, like that I'm too scared to feel vulnerable, like that's not, that just felt, that shattered me, especially with my brother. And so one of the things that like really touched me was to make sure that I was being open with people, that I was like surrendering like in the moment of it doesn't matter what I'm afraid of. It doesn't matter if I'm afraid that they're going to like it or not, that they're going to think I'm weird for like expressing, expressing affection, like genuine, like, like tender affection for somebody emotionally. Not, and I'm not even talking about like telling someone just like being heart centered, like heart up front. And I think for, especially for young men, it's, it's really hard to do that. Um, there's a lot of stigma around that. Yeah. I think it's a testament to, the sincerity of this book and its teachings that the conversation has gone where it has. I had no idea we were going to be talking about this. So we, Stephen and I have a general sense of where we're going. We're not doing this blind. We prepare a lot for our episodes. We do a lot of reading and preparation, but we sort of leave a, a certain amount of uncertainty for the naturalness of the conversation. And it took us here, which I think actually... Now that I think about it, this is an interesting quality to Chogyam Trungpa. He's known as a teacher who has crazy wisdom. We haven't even touched on how ridiculously controversial he was and how he did things that were truly questionable. But I, it's not even, you know, that's... The, <laughs> I recommend reading the Wikipedia article. You'll you'll get a sense. And But really, I hope everyone listening gets a sense of the power behind many of his teachings. Also, a shout out to his disciple, who's perhaps equally as well known, Pema Chodron. She wrote a book. She's a she's a relatively well-known Buddhist nun. She's probably like the most well-known American Tibetan teacher for sure. Yes. Easily. Exactly. And she wrote a book called When Things Fall Apart. And it's a great, great book. And she touches... It's, almost, it's like it's about disappointment. It's yes! It's like the whole book is about disappointment. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If, Sorry, go on, go on. Well, I was just going to say, these. if the depth of, of this conversation has touched you, and if you're going through something that is very challenging and you don't know where to go, I recommend that book by Pema Chodron. And it, what it will do is, in my experience... It takes a stone hard wall emotionally and it cracks it open just a little bit, enough for there to be some light and love to seep in. And eventually it can open up fully where whatever needs to be healed gets healed and, and is exposed. There's a great teaching actually in Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism where Trungpa talks about how to truly heal. When you're a patient and you have a doctor, you cannot get healed unless you're fully open with the physician and tell them what's going on. Like, honestly and truly, if you lie about your symptoms, if you conceal, if you make it up, if you minimize it, then you won't get truly the treatment that you need. But if you can be willing to truly surrender and be open and just share things as they are, then the healing begins. And I thought that was a very apt analogy, something that I resonated with. 
Yeah, it's, it's a good example. Like, you know, if I came to you, Adam, I know it's not your, not your specialty, but if I came to you with lung cancer, right? And you're like, hey, Stephen, do you smoke by any chance? No, I definitely don't smoke. And like tucking this pack of cigarettes like in, further into my pocket. And like, I just never told you I smoked. Like, I refuse to admit that I smoked to you, the doctor. You know, like, you would know, first of all, because like you've been around a while. You know, this is like the analogy of a teacher, right? Like, you're not the first person who's tried to lie to the teacher. <laughs> but like the doctor, it's like, well, if you just admitted that you smoked, then this could go a lot faster. It would suck to have to tell me you smoke, but then we could actually do something about it because right now I'm going to do what I can for you, but unless you're in on it, like, it's not going to go away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's my medical metaphor. So we're nearing the end, roughly, of of the episode. Um, Stephen, this really, I wouldn't have ever found this book if it weren't for you. What would you have to say to people who are maybe haven't read this and are interested? Before we get there, just real quick, I hate to do this to you, but I want to talk about a super important part of the book that we haven't touched on, which is a sense of humor. Oh my gosh. Yes. Dive into that. I, I, I just, I we have can't. to. I yeah, have to. We can't we move can't. on. That That's so critical. Oh my God. And the next like eight chapters. <laughs> Guys, we are about to take a deep dive into the five skandhas. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, actually, we we, we've been talking about whether this actually needs to be a two or three episode review of the book, but well, it's not really a view, review, it's a discussion, but yes, there's so much more. We've only covered, I think maybe a ha- half to two thirds of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So he has a whole chapter on having a sense of humor. And, and this is something that I certainly appreciate and any sort of teacher that I relate to, usually they have a good sense of humor. And he says, get this, another quote. If you are not meditating, this is like the attitude of like what not, like, like he says, uh, I think he uses, he talks about a sense of humor and what a sense of humor isn't, right? He first like uses a negative. He's like, it'd be easier to just tell you what a sense of humor isn't. And so he says, if you are not meditating properly, sitting still and upright, there will be someone behind you just about to strike. Or if you are not dealing with life properly, honestly, directly, someone is just about to hit you. You know, it's this attitude that, like, if I don't do it, there's, like, the man in the sky is going to, like, strike me with a lightning bolt. You know, like, that's so strict all the time, straight. Like, even when you're completely safe, you know, no one's around to judge you. And you still, like, can't let your hair down, right? And and there's a real sense in, in spiritual paths of people taking themselves very seriously. Like, oh, no, I'm a practitioner in X and Y lineage, and I have studied with these teachers. This is my spiritual resume, my spiritual resume, and this is why I have authority and why I'm someone you should listen to. Eh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> a sense of humor is, that's not having a sense of humor, you know? Like, I think a sense of humor is is really important and to kind of have a relationship with our limited human selves that isn't one of only just hate <laughs> and, and, you know, like trying to fix it all the time, which ties right in with the rest of the book. One of my favorite YouTube videos of Alan Watts, actually, harking back to, to one of our first episodes, is... A video, I think it's a chill step. There's a, a couple of great videos which have chill step music. Shout in the out background. to whoever made those. Shout, Shout out. out We're going to have to find out who those. that is and, and put it in the show notes. There's a, a YouTube video called Don't Take Life So Seriously. I listen to it so often because it's a great lecture that Alan Watts gives that is exactly based on this, on these Buddhist concepts of just laugh at life, laugh at, at the absurdity, at this, at just the craziness that happens. Just don't don't take it so seriously. I'm not ready to end this show. I'm sorry. It's we've been recording. I can see the timer. We've been recording for 59 minutes and 56, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, one hour. Okay, we're recording for an hour. I have to talk about one of the central themes that allows all of this to be possible, and it comes. It ties back into kind of his view of the spiritual path, and and it's. To anyone who has any familiarity with Buddhist teachings, it'll be a no-brainer. But the idea of a lack of a permanent self, and I didn't want to get into, like, dive into things like the five skandhas and, like, really, like, central Buddhist teachings, because it's this isn't fundamentally currently a show about explaining how religions work. But fundamental to all of these conversations that are happening 
is the idea that there's no sense of permanent self, right? There's no one that has it all that inside of us, right? We have the we have the the sense of self. We have you say the, the illusion of self of like there's literally a person sitting here that has qualities like I my name is Stephen Downs. Stephen Downs is a person that has is on a spiritual path or isn't or you know is Buddhist or not Buddhist or atheist or Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Christian. Like, you know, there's a self and, and fundamental to all of this is understanding that that's actually not the case. And yeah, there's no, there's no like f- permanent person there, right? There might be aspects of ourselves that continue on or don't continue on, you know, after, after we die, you know, depending on what your flavor is. Um, but there's no permanent thing there. And that's very fundamental to all of this because when you understand and really start to get that, like, there's no one there there's just these these like reactions and i think we're having a conversation adam you and i and i the the buddhist word for this would be like causes and conditions is one of the ways that they describe it like things happen because something caused them right and then those things will cause other things and it's this like never-ending cycle of causes and conditions and i remember you were i don't even remember what we're talking about now but you were going through like a particularly hard time and I got a particularly tough decision or something like that. And I remember telling you, it's like, Adam, just remember, all you are is causes and conditions. And like that, that like broke it for you, you know, like you were able to be like, oh my God, yes, yes, I, indeed it is just causes and conditions. And there's no, there's, that's the sense of humor, right? Like understanding, like it's just life happening. It's not rocket science. Life is not rocket science, people. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to have this at we have to have this attitude like it's some part of ourselves. Even if we, you know, you're someone you're a, you're a critical care physician. Like your job is very serious. You have hold a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. You take your job very seriously to be the best you can be at it to serve people with the most care and the most skill that you can. And still life is like, you know, like it's just happening. There's there's no answer. And I, I think that's fundamentally what a sense of humor is in this is, this, is understanding that no one has the answers. You're okay. Do what you can when you can. Take it as seriously as you want when it makes sense to, but don't die for it. You know, don't martyr yourself for your cause, for your, you know, like being a spiritual person. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot in that and a lot to be said about the way of the cross you know the that the spiritual path needs to be a path of suffering in order for it to be legitimate and and worthy it's like you that's your that's your path that's why we get along so well because you're you're so <laughs> sanctimonious all the time it, hey it needs to balance out the absolute profanity that is your life <laughs> wow god yeah so brutal so cut brutal. right to the right to the core adam yep yep <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. That's what I wanted to get through. That's a, that's a good minutes. note to end. That's what I want to get through. Okay. So, so how do we end this? So I recommend if you haven't read this book that you get this book. I think that this book for certain types of people will be very challenging. It will push a lot of buttons, but I think it's important. I think it's one of the most important books that you could ever read if you're someone who is interested in, in development of any kind, because these con- these questions these traits that we have of of self-deception, of not wanting to surrender, of things like the heart, concepts like the hard way, the open way, how to relate to a teacher, right? Concepts of any, it could be any teacher, just a mentor, right? Mentors are something, or or like a figure in many of our lives. This book is like a masterclass on how not to do it. That's it. Well, well said. Well said. What about you? Oh, yeah. I would say this is an excellent primer. For those of you who've been on the, the spiritual path, and I know there are many, many different paths out there, it does something to see dynamics that you thought were unique to your own path or to your own tradition's path. Oh, that's a great point. Ooh. And to see it from a different angle, specifically the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, it does something to realizing its universality, and it gives you another access point to go through and transform whatever it is you're experiencing to to be with it and to remember that much more who you really are 
in all of this. Yeah, yeah, I I think I that was a great point. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of that, but I love it. Yeah, I think a, apart from just really recommending this book because it's my all-time favorite, I I think that I want if you're still listening, yeah, I just want you to know that you're all right. That no one out there has the answers. No one out there knows knows more than you about you and who the decisions that you make and who you choose to be in the world is perfect and it's perfectly wonderful and all right and you don't have to sacrifice who you are for someone else whether that be a family member whether that be uh, especially a teacher that you are you are perfect and whole you are perfect and whole i could not have ended that better I, I said you, there was no wholeness actually earlier in this episode, so I'm a bit contradictory This here. is it. This is paradox. That's, that's life, man. All right. Well, I think we're going to end it there. Sounds good. Well, Adam, you have yourself a wonderful day at work tomorrow, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Thanks, Stephen. Take it easy. Goodbye. Bye.